Okay, look with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. We're coming to a conclusion in this brief series in this passage entitled, A Call to Live for the Lord. And this is the seventh message as, as we walked our way through verses 1 through 11. And we come here on the final one, which is service to God and others, our service to others in God. Because when we serve others, we are ultimately serving God. And one way that we do serve God is to serve other people. Those two um, are joined hand in hand. It's impossible to separate them from one another. Verses 10 and 11, and let's look at it together, and it reads, As each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And what does it say? Amen. Amen. What a great close to this passage. And here is a thought for you. When we think about serving one another, we often look to an example, and that example should be found in Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 45 tells us the Son of Man came to do what? He came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And even as we look at this, these final two verses, I think we should allow the example of Jesus Christ to confront us. Yes, confrontation is necessary, and it's necessary because we are not living the way that we should. We're not being the people that we should. We aren't living to our maximum potential. And I know there's a lot of talk about potential in the church today and, and maximizing who you are, maximizing your potential, maximizing your influence. But often when people, some people that is, speak in those terms, they're not speaking in the terms in which I am and we're going to consider this morning we're talking about maximizing ultimately for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people. Not so that we can reap some benefit for ourselves, but that we can benefit others for their own spiritual growth and so that the church is strengthened and so that God is glorified. So we have to have some sense of confrontation with ourselves. As a matter of fact, to a certain degree, I think we all confront ourselves, at least we should, every day with something that we see in ourselves that we want to be different in ourselves. At least I have a daily confrontation that there's something that I see in me that is not like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope, at least, that all of us, if we're going to be honest, there are things in ourselves that we see that are not like Jesus Christ. Do we not? We see it all the time. So yes, when I say confront, I'm talking about the modern church and some of the culture in the modern church. And the modern church has a mindset that needs to be confronted. The modern church often will say, what will I gain? What needs I have will be met. The church thinks about today often, what sounds that I like hearing will they play for me? Will I hear the sounds that I like when I go to that church? What about the things that I want to see? Will it look the way that I want it to look when I go to that church? 
or people think this way? What about the people that I like to be around and the people that I like to hear? Will they be there? So we often think about self. Um, we're born that way. And we were that way from birth, were we not? And we see it even in the cutest of children. They are that, that way. I've never had to teach any of my kids, never um, one second did I have to teach any of them to be selfish. Is that true? No. We're fighting from day one, what? When it comes with kids and toys, we're telling them to do what? Share. Uh, you never have, I've never seen a parent have a conversation with the kid. Now, Billy, it's time that you learn selfishness. <laughs> I know that it's not in your nature to do it. You, you, the first thought that you have is to share everything that you have. No parent has ever had that conversation, nor will they. Because what is built in us, even from those early stages, is selfishness. To think about how will it benefit me. And so this mindset is in the church as well. What will I gain? Who will I see? What will I hear? How will it benefit me? What needs that I have will be met? Now, don't confuse this because the needs of people must be met. Genuine needs must be met. Even what we announced earlier, let's get together and talk with your elders. Maybe there's some needs that you have, and we can help you with it. Maybe there's some spiritual counsel that we can give. Maybe we can direct you as to your giftedness and how you can be more used of the Lord here in this church. Oh, I didn't know that was your situation. Perhaps we can help you in that. That is a great way for you to serve. We can help you in that. So needs have to be met. We come here, and that should be a part of the experience in the body of Christ. So don't confuse it, what I'm saying here. But there shouldn't be this mindset that that is something that is the constant of our life, and it's the first thing in our life when we think about what can they do for me as opposed to what can I do for them? What do I offer? What do I bring? What do I contribute? What, in, in what way do I help? And so we might even say this, if you will, by way of a, a word picture for you. All of us, if we were to replicate ourselves, and by replicating ourselves, that would then determine the membership of a given church, what sort of membership would you have? I asked that question I was teaching the Pasadena Bible study last night, and I asked that of them. We did this brief series on better in Proverbs, how certain things are better than others. And we talked about even in the home how one can have a spouse that is so quarrelsome or the scripture says contentious that it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in that house with her or it's better to be in a desert land than in a house with her or him. And so if you were to replicate yourself, what sort of person would you be surrounded by? And in the church, a hundred of you. Instead of, if you look around right now, and every other chair with every other person is now you in these chairs, what would Anchored be? What would Grace Church be? I think that's a reasonable question. And I'm hoping that all of us, and I don't think it would be arrogant to make the statement, I'm hoping that all of us would be able to say, I think it would be a decent church. I think it would be a decent church. But I think some of us would also be able to say, I should say, if we're going to be objective, oh my, there's some areas that 
that church would be lacking because I know me. I know some of my tendencies. And it could be something like, it's not necessarily sinful. Maybe you're not a person that's going to be outgoing. You would say, I'm not sure if that church would ever grow because I'm entirely too shy. I would never invite anyone, and I have a tendency not to invite people or not to talk to people, so I'm not sure what would happen with evangelism in that church. Not necessarily sinful, but that's a part of you. Or maybe a part of you is, oh my, I don't think anyone would ever get a word in because I tend to dominate conversations. So it would always be about me. And oh my, here are my musical preferences. They would never hear any of those songs because these are the only things that I think are worthy of worship and in my consideration. And if we go on and on and on with things like that, I think all of us, if we're going to be objective, would say, oh my, there would be some flaws in that church. Are we all willing right now to be objective and say, oh my, <laughs> oh my, <laughs> oh my, there'd be some flaws in that church. But the grace of God is with us, amen? <laughs> And we're all in this process, I pray, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, where you're changing, you're being sanctified, and we're being made more into the image of Christ. And this is why, even in introducing this thought, we look to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life, what does it say? A ransom for, for many, to give. And that's why the scripture tells us, of course, yes, we are serving one another. It says build up one another. So it's obvious that we are built up and then we build up other people. We encourage one another. We come sometimes and you can be discouraged. Yes, people come to this campus and at times they're discouraged. And sometimes people come to this campus and they're discouraged and they may not let on that they're discouraged because they think, well, wait a minute, if I let on to that, what will people think about me? They won't see me as spiritual or as mature because that's not we, what we do here at Grace Community Church. It's a church with people. And because it's a church with people, people have needs, and they go through highs and lows in life. And guess what? Sometimes on Sundays, that's a low moment in life for people. Is this a reality or what? And we try to turn the corner, and we try to boosts our spirits, and we hear some songs, and hopefully we are better, and we try to reorient ourselves, but the reality is sometimes people come, and their hearts are heavy, and they're discouraged, and this is why we need one another, and you may notice that in someone, and you can go alongside that person and encourage them in whatever stage they may find themselves. Serve, excuse me, serve one another. It's obviously there. It's reciprocal. You are serving and you are being served. It's important. So this passage is coming to an end, and, and the overall outline is this way, and you can see it there as we've been working our way through it. The example of Christ calls us to a new life, and we see that in verses 1 to 6. The eschaton of Christ calls us to a new life. That is, he's coming back again. The time is near. So we should think eschatologically. That is, the time is near, verse 7. Therefore, respond. The, the key word is imminency. Christ is coming back again. And we've already looked at this idea that we should be praying thoughtfully, we should be loving people, and we should be sharing sacrificially, that is, showing hospitality. And now we're, in this sense, live by serving responsibly. Live by serving responsibly. And this is what we see in verses 9 and 10. 
live by serving responsibly. Now, um, in these verses, we need to learn something here. Peter's experience with Christ influences his understanding even of service. That was true about prayer. We said it on each occasion that Peter's experience with Christ influences his experience uh, with Christ, influences his thinking on prayer, that is, because he saw Jesus pray often. He would go to a desert place, to a lonely place, if you will, and he would pray. It was a part of his life. And, and of course, Peter would absolutely remember the time in the garden and Jesus being in full earnest praying. Obviously, Peter would be influenced by Christ's example of love. Peter would be influenced by hospitality shown to him and Jesus Christ and the other disciples. And most definitely, Peter is going to be influenced by seeing the example of Jesus Christ and how he served other people. Um, I think it's, it would be wonderful if everyone could absolutely go and experience the Holy Land and go there and see it. Because when you're there and you see it, and you're walking in these places where Jesus Christ walked, and you see the terrain, and you say to yourself, they went from this place to the other, and, and this is this arid area where they were, and I'm imagining them doing that, and they just have these sandals on, and there is no Nike super foam that they're walking on. There's nothing like that. But he went about doing good, and he healed, and he taught. And he performed miracles. He served other people. Peter saw Mark 10:45 fleshed out before him for those years. So it influenced him. And so what I want us to do in this passage is to break it down. And there are actually six responses in verses 10 and 11. And I think in these six responses, it's going to help you. As you see there, you can practice then a servant's heart. If you practice a servant's heart, what is going to happen? Well, first, you're going to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ because he came to serve. If you practice a servant's heart, you're going to strengthen the body of Christ because one another, serving one another, we're in this battle together. If you practice a servant's heart, you're going to gain the satisfaction of service. The idea when you serve other people, there's a satisfaction it comes with giving. And that's why people that think too often about what they will receive, they're missing out on the blessing, the satisfaction of giving to other people. And of course, if you practice the servant's heart, you're going to then participate in the Great Commission. How do you participate in the Great Commission? Because if you're strengthening the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is now more equipped for the work of the service, and the ultimate work of service is what? The Great Commission, it is healthier. It is strengthened for the work ahead. And so these six responses in this text, I think, will help us. Let me give you the first one. Number one, serve responsibly as you recognize God's gift. Serve responsibly as you recognize God's gift. Notice verse 10, as each one has received. So we stop for a moment and we say, here I am. I'm in this group, I'm in this church, I'm in the body of Christ. The first thing I need to recognize, I have a responsibility. I recognize God's gift to me and notice that it is personal, that it is individual. He says, each one has received. Each one has received. So I start there. 
What's my mindset? No, I'm not left alone. There is a gift given to me, and now I have responsibility to use that gift. And I think as well, one thing that's going to help motivate us, and I'll say it this way, that the love of Christ should also control us as well. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at verse 13. The love of Christ should help me then respond responsibly. 2 Corinthians 5 and then 13. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 says what? Paul writes, and he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Then verse 14 says, For the love of Christ does what? What does it do? Controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So what is Paul saying? He is saying in verse 13, that since this extraordinary zeal, remember that this is caused by Christ and my calling as an apostle to work for him. The same thought we would see if if you were to consider. He has this great zeal. Look over at chapter 6. He says, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, and much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings, imprisonments and tumults and labors, sleeplessness and in hunger. Paul is saying, why do I still have this zeal despite all these difficulties? Because I have a mindset that is shaped and formed by the mindset of Christ, the example of Christ. You would see the same thing in chapter 11, 23 to 28. And then what Paul is saying is somewhat like this, and, um, and let me just read it for you. Paul is saying it, and I just wrote it out. Some say that I'm out of my mind. No, I have a sound mind because it is obvious that I'm not promoting myself. It is obvious that all I do is for the cause of Christ. Now, if you want to still believe that I'm out of my mind, then let it be. Let the record show that I'm out of my mind for Christ. If you're going to be out of your mind for someone, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what some people would think. Remember, even Jesus Christ, even his relatives came to him and said, he's out of his mind. What is he doing? They said, he's lost his mind. Well, no, he hadn't lost his mind. They just didn't realize that he was God in human flesh. He was doing his Father's will. He had a sound mind, but that's, that mind was given to what? Doing his father's will, doing the, his father's will. So we're controlled by this. And then in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, um, he gives the why for this service. The why is the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you love me, you will feed my sheep. And this love that Paul himself has experienced, now it motivates him to demonstrate that love to others. And notice what it says, it controls. Uh, The word means it holds together. It is a constraint. So it constrains me, constrains my decisions, my life decisions. It constrains my priorities. It controls how I see life and how I invest my life. And the same thing should be true of us all. We say to ourselves, if the love of Christ has really gotten a hold of our hearts, it will dictate life decisions, should it not? 
We can't still make the same decisions we did before we knew the Lord. That is an impossibility. Because the decisions before we knew the Lord, particularly if we came to the Lord later in our adult life, those decisions were based on selfish aspirations and dreams that perhaps we had, and they were not surrendered to the sovereign will of God. And now that I have surrendered my life to his sovereign will, I must make those decisions that are consistent with God's sovereign will. And then we realize that so much of what I wanted in life was contrary to the will of God. But now that's changed. Because now it controls me. It constrains me. It dominates me, some would even say. It overwhelms me is what it does. And before we were overwhelmed with our sin. Now we pray that we can be overwhelmed with the grace of God. Uh, one thought, and just briefly I want to note it. Go back to Luke, if you will, this idea of love. Go back to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. And then notice, if you will, great example. The woman has anointed Christ. She's given him these kisses even on her feet, his feet. And notice verse 47, what does it say? For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Amen for that. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little does what? Loves little. Hmm. What is Jesus Christ saying? When a person realizes their sinfulness before the living God, that they realize the magnitude of their hurt that they have shown God and others, and then when they are forgiven, there's a great, great sense of joy, a great sense of joy. And that's why one can actually say to some degree that there is a benefit to sin in this way, and that once we realize the magnitude of our sin, we realize how far we are from God, that now realizing that I've been forgiven this great debt, it gives me a perspective that I wouldn't have before if I didn't see the magnitude of that sin. I mean, it's, and this is what he's saying even earlier about uh, verse 42. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them will love him more when he tells the parable of the debt? So when we think about it in our practical lives, if someone comes to you and say, I'm paying off the mortgage of your home. Oh, I love you. I love you. <laughs> or if they say, you know, I'm paying off that, you know, $2,000 college debt. Well, you're great, but I was hoping for more. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, if someone shows up to my house and says, Hargrove, I, just because the mortgage is paid. I'm, I'm hugging this person, whoever there is, a long hug. I'm going to give it to them. And we think about our sin and the wretchedness of our sin. And I'm going to go off on a limb and say, some of you in this room, you were fornicators in this room. Some of you in this room, you were into things that you should not have been, that you saw things that you should not have seen. Some of you in this room, you had thoughts of adultery. Some of you in this room, you are using things to alter your mind, thinking that somehow I don't need Christ. I can get the feeling from whatever it may be that I'm indulging in. 
Some in this room, you had angry issues. Some of you in this room, I know it to be the case. You say, how do I know it? Am I a prophet? I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I've been around ministering long enough, and I know people long enough to realize that's how life unfolds in a group this large. So pause for a moment and say to yourself, how much has he forgiven me? And consider it from this perspective when Paul said to the church at Colossae that there was a certificate of debt that was hostile towards you. But it is taken away through the cross. Amen. Notice what it says. Hostile. Not neutral. It was a hostile debt. Unable to pay. And as a matter of fact, and I've said it this way before and I'll say it again, not only unable to pay, the moment you attempted to pay it by your good works, it made it even worse. So this love showing me to say, serve the Lord, of course. I'll serve the Lord where? This love should confront modern culture in the church. It is thinking about, okay, what do they have? Let me go shopping for a church or shopping for a group. God's church is not to be shopped. God's church is to be served. Amen? It's to be served. Number two, here's the second response. Serve responsibly as you meet God's expectation. As you meet God's expectation. Go back to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. So first, realize each one, uh, I've been given a gift. Secondly, I need to meet God's expectation. Well, what is the expectation? It's clearly there. You have received a special gift. Employ it. See, that's the expectation. The expectation is that you do something with it that you not be idle. Every person in this room should make a contribution to this local church, this local church. Now, your contribution may never be noted. You may never be up front. We may never see you, may never know your name. But in one sense, that is uh, of no matter because the one that you want to know your name is the Father who is above, amen? And you do it unto the Lord. But every one of you, there's something that you can do in this church. You say, but what about my gifts? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But this, do you agree with me on what I'm telling you? Do you agree with that thesis statement that because you have received a gift, then God has an expectation that you employ it, then that is clearly implying that every one of you should make a contribution. Can we agree on that at least? Okay, we can agree. Third response is this. Well, hold on. For that third response, I need to say something else. Because I did mention a gift. Though I don't know my gifts, that happens. People may know the Lord for quite a while and still really not know their gifts. And often they're using their gifts and they don't even know it. So quick test. This is how you can know how to know your gift. Four words, serve. Second word, observe. Third word is test. The fourth word is counsel. That is just serve, do things. You'll gravitate towards it. You'll enjoy it more. People then observe you and say, you know what? Wow, you really do that well. That's excellent. Can you help us more with this? So people are observing you and test it. That is try different opportunities in the church. And then counsel. And that counsel comes at times from that observation. And maybe you sit down with someone that's more mature or they are your peer. And here are the things that are on my heart. What do you think? And then discover that gift. 
and use that gift. It's clear that you have it. There's an expectation that God says, employ it. Use it. Number three, third response is this. Serve responsibly as you apply human stewardship. Serve responsibly as you apply human stewardship. Notice what it says. Go back to the text. We want it to be coming from here. Employ it in serving one another. And what does he say? As what? As good stewards. What is a steward? Steward is a manager. A steward is one that organizes. And notice what he says. A good steward, that is a responsible steward, one that is conscientious of his giftedness. And now I realize that I have this giftedness. I have to be a steward of it. Even as elders, uh, even a reason for us to spend that time with you in the grace walk and have a lunch with you and talk with you is a stewardship. You see banners around this campus, and what are they communicating? Yes, the work of the word, but it's communicating what? A steward must be found what? Faithful. Found faithful. You are a steward. God has given you giftedness, and you have to use that giftedness for the cause of Christ. Be a good steward. There's been a life change that's occurred in you. Just consider, I don't have time to go to all of them, on Luke 17, 7 through 10. What's communicated in Luke 17, 7 through 10 is this reality that this slave decides that he loves his master so much, he wants to commit himself to his master forever. And the statement that is so important to it, he says, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done what we ought to have done. God, I do not deserve your grace. There is nothing in me. Unless um, you want to deny the doctrines of grace, unless you do not want to have a reformed thinking about salvation, and, and if you want to be Arminian in your thinking that says that somehow God looked through the annals of, of time and saw me and saw what potential I had, and therefore he chose me, which we absolutely reject, do we not? No, God looks through the annals of times and he sees what? He is, there you are, a wretched sinner, and he makes you alive. And then we say to ourselves, oh my, I don't deserve this. I think all of us right now, if we pause for a moment, we would agree what? We all deserve what? What would you say? Hell. See, why does it not even, I don't, we all know that. It doesn't take a great deal of prompting for you to say that. If we understand salvation, we all know that we all deserve hell. And each morning we should wake up saying, hallelujah. I'm not receiving what I deserve. And I'm not receiving what I deserve because my sin was placed on Jesus Christ. And he did not deserve it, but he took it upon himself. I'm an unworthy slave to think that I can even serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as a thought that perhaps this is also why Paul would say, if you think I'm out of my mind, no, I'm not. The love of Christ controls me, constrains me, compels me, overwhelms me. Because that reality is forever in my mind. See, we are free slaves. There's a sort of a 
there's an oxymoron even to salvation, isn't there? A free slave? Wait a minute. Yes, a free slave. I am free now from sin, but I am free to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great reality is captured in that thought. You're a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are now been bought by the grace of God. It, it's, it's Galatians 2 and 20. This is life I no longer live, but I live this new life for the Lord. Here's our fourth response. Number four, serve responsibly as you make divine proclamation. As you make divine proclamation. Now, before I talk about this divine proclamation, go back to verse 10 and notice what it says. As good stewards of, what does it say? The manifold grace of God. This is important. The manifold grace of God, varying grace of God, multicolored grace of God, multifaceted grace of God. And now God has allowed me to experience his grace, and what I must do is be a steward of it. Why does it say the manifold grace of God? Because it touches so much, and not really correctly stated, better stated, not so much. It touches all of our life in so many ways. The manifold grace of God is experienced in that God has raised up people with different gifts in the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and those different gifts come together. The manifold grace of God is manifested in Ephesians chapter 4, and those that he's given to the church, that the church would be built up. And so now I'm a steward of that. And this fourth response is make divine proclamation. Notice what it says in verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. We have a responsibility when we speak for the Lord that we're speaking a divine proclamation. And even the simplest of a gospel presentation is a divine proclamation. You share with someone in the street, you're saying, thus saith the Lord. You call that person to faith. You're telling that person, no, these are not my words. These are the words of the one whom I represent. We think about the basic idea of an apostle, one who is sent, but also one that is sent and he has a responsibility um, and he has a sense of authority from that person that has sent him, right? So I come in the name of the king. And when we speak the gospel to people, we're saying to them, these are the very utterances of God, of God that I'm speaking to you. That's a great deal of responsibility that we have. Number five is this, a fifth response. A fifth response is serve responsibly as you rest in divine enablement. Divine enablement. Then he says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving, next phrase so important, by the strength which God supplies. So important. Because sometimes we can serve and it not be in God's strength. We can do things in the flesh. We can do things according to our own effort. And what God tends to do, at least he has in my history, is at some point in time humble me and realize that you cannot do it without my strength. And that's a gracious act of God at times when he may overwhelm us or simply humble us. And we realize that whatever we do, we have to do it in the strength which God supplies. And how does he do it? Well, it's connected to this manifold grace. It's what Paul would pray even. And he wanted the thorn to leave him. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient to deal with difficulty. But grace is necessary to serve the Lord. 
It's an empowering grace that we have as well. God empowers us to live for him. Number six, this last response. Serve responsibly as you participate in divine purpose. You participate in divine purpose. Notice verse 11. So, yes, we speak for God. We serve by God's strength. And then he says, the so that, the purpose statement, so that in all things God may be, what does it say? Glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here is the end of all things. We get to go from people, a people, who at one point in time sought our own glory, our own recognition, and now we can do what? We can serve to the glory of God. What a great privilege. And something that should confront us is this reality of eternity. That we're living our lives for eternity. We cannot use our money for selfish things. We invest in the lives of people. It's the thought again of, of um, Luke 16 and 9. That we use the mammon of men so that we can be received into eternal, eternal dwellings. We make these investments with people. And then when we do that, we have the joy of satisfaction. God, I'm fortunate, and um, you know, life has really been blessed. Uh, when I, I think about it, and growing up, I think about my dad and things that I learned from him. That they, weren't, they weren't always, let's sit down and have a lesson, but you just saw it from him. And he was gracious. And I grew up just... Um, kids from another part of the neighborhood coming over and, and sharing and coming over and eating our food and my buddies coming over and we just eat as much as we could. And, and then when I got the newest of something, everyone shared it with me. When I, I remember I was a little kid and I, and I got a go-kart. No one in the neighborhood had a go-kart. Some of you know what a go-kart is. So you know what a go-kart is. And I had a go-kart and we, and we, we overrode the, the governor because the governor was there to keep it at a certain speed, and we overrode it, and we made it go twice as fast as it was supposed to, and we'd flip it over and all sorts of fun. I remember that. I remember it was the, when we got our first little video game. Back then, it was called Pong, and all it did was bounce the ball back and forth, and we just thought, see, well, I'm totally dating myself, right? Totally dating myself. It was like, wow, kids would come over, and we'd fill up the, in Florida, called the Florida Room. It was in the back. And kids in the neighborhood, like, man, Carl has a, this video game, man. They didn't say off the chain back then, but it was something like that. <laughs> it's like, wow. And all it was was pong, pong, going back and forth. And we just thought this was the coolest. It was the coolest. But you say, yeah, those, they stuck with me. Yeah, you gave the people you didn't know and who are you? And they were in your, in your Florida room there with you. Like, okay, I guess you're okay. And you played with them and you had fun with them. That's what my dad did. And I saw that in him. And maybe you hear about someone that had a need and let's go over and help them out. Okay, let's go help them out. And we'd go to the, you know, because he was a military guy, we'd go to the, the commissary and we'd get the food and, hey, let's drop some of it off to these people. And I have another father. It makes my dad look like uh, the stingiest man in the world. 
and this father gave his only begotten son. He served. Like sometimes that we were talking about what's happening in, in our country and in our world culturally, and it seems like this is not possible that a man who is ranked 30th amongst men in college decides that he wants to identify with a woman. I'm not 30th, I'm sorry, 300th. He was ranked number 300 in his event in the NCAA track and field in this event, and he decides now he identifies as a woman and then he races against women, and then he wins the event, and everyone's okay with that. I, I, I was thinking about that. No, this is not true. I'm going to wake up. This is a bad dream. This really isn't happening. People aren't, you know, supporting this. People aren't cheering this on. People aren't not speaking for these young girls who work so hard, maybe since they were like this, and they get to the NCAA championships, and Joe, who thinks he's June, is going to come out here and run the waste when he was ranked 300 and wins. And no one says anything. So sometimes I think it's not true. It's not a reality. And sometimes when it comes to Christ, I think, is this true? And I don't mean in the doubt, but I just it is so overwhelming, the reality, when you think about who God is, a sovereign, all-powerful, holy, gracious God would serve me. I said, let me wake up from this. <laughs> this is not, come on, it can't be true. And I don't really care all the degrees that I have. Sometimes I still say to myself, and I think you understand when I say this sense of doubt. Perhaps we'll call it a holy, a holy doubt. We say this is so overwhelmingly positive, gracious. But maybe I'll wake up. And I'll just be the sinner that I was before without the grace of God. And that's why the final thought is this. Emulate the ultimate servant. Emulate the ultimate servant. Go with me to Mark. I was thinking about the ending of the message and I had something lined up and it was a historical point about Spanish and, and South America and the gold that they extracted from it and slavery and, and how they use it, but it was all temporary. And I looked at it again. I thought, no, that's not the way to end this. And I thought about how I began. The Son of Man came to serve. And several days ago, I just sat down. And I said, and I just read through Mark's gospel in a setting. It was about an hour and a half read through Mark's gospel. And I was just, oh, this is so wonderful. And I thought, here's a conclusion to the message. Here's a conclusion right here. So let's look with me at Mark chapter 14. Here's a conclusion to this message. Here's a conclusion to this passage. That ultimately, you must look to the ultimate servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to serve, but to do what? He did not come to be served, right? You're listening, amen. Amen, you're listening. All right, that's right. You're listening. He did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. And to give his life what? For how many? For many. Are you in the many? Amen. And so I'm reading, and 
in Luke's, in Mark's gospel and say, here's the ending to the message that says, thank you, Lord. Now, is it something so profound, is it some great historical fact? It is the greatest historical fact. Look at it, chapter 14. No, there are going to be several. Just listen to me. Just listen to me. 14. It was the third hour. Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 44. Now he was betraying him. Whomever I kiss, he is the one seized him. Verse 45, rabbi, and kissed him. Verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 56, for many were giving false testimonies against him. Verse 64, and they all condemned him. Verse 65, Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Chapter 15, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately led a consultation in binding Jesus. They led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Then Pilate questioned him, saying again, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Verse 13, they shouted, crucify him. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Verse 15, after Jesus was scourged, they handed him over to be crucified. Verse 16, the soldiers took him. Verse 17, they dressed him. Verse 19, they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And they mocked him and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 22, then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, the place of a skull. Verse 23, they gave him wine. They crucified him. 29, those were passing by hurling abuse at him. Verse 31, they were mocking him. Verse 32, they were insulting him. And then verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Huh. I mean, what else can I say? What else can I say? What else can I say to you? How can you possibly be motivated or not motivated? What is it that one has to say to you to say, what a great privilege you have to serve one another? See, this is why the story of supposed El Dorado and the Spanish and slavery and gold was insignificant. What else can I say? But what's been said? Son of Man came. Emulate the Son of Man. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that it will penetrate our hearts. 
all of us think about how do we contribute to honoring the Son of Man. We thank you, Christ's name.